You're now listening to episode 38 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with Jay Scott, full-time real estate investor and rehabber who has rehabbed over 300 houses with his wife for millions of dollars in profits. These days, their team has branched out, now flipping houses in different parts of the country and focusing on larger new construction projects. Jay is also a best-selling author, having written several critically acclaimed real estate books, including The Book on Flipping Houses, The Book on Estimating Rehab Costs, and Recession-Proof Real Estate Investing. In this episode, we discuss how to analyze fix and flip deals, where we are in the current market cycle, how Jay handles accounting and taxes, and more. Before we jump right into today's episode, we want to remind you about our virtual workshops. They are not a webinar, but rather our virtual workshops are a highly interactive experience that puts you in a room with our tax strategists as well as fellow real estate investors. We will discuss a topic for the first 15 to 20 minutes and then open the room up for questions. This is the perfect opportunity to get answers to those real estate tax and accounting questions that you've been dying to ask, while at the same time discovering what other real estate investors are asking. You could sign up for our virtual workshops by visiting therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual dash workshop or by following the link in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. Jay, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Your story has been well documented. Um, on your website, 123flip.com, as well as Bigger Pockets. But would you be able to give our audience who may not be familiar with your story an overview of how you got into flipping houses? Yeah, absolutely. So I was in the tech world for most of my career up until about 2008. Met my wife in Silicon Valley in California. We were both in the tech business. When we decided to get married, we were working ridiculous hours. So we decided to get married moved back to the East Coast, and we wanted to start some type of lifestyle business, just something where we could kind of put family first and not, for the first time in our lives, not put work first. So we moved back to the East Coast. We ended up in Atlanta back in 2008. And this was during, this was during the Great Recession. This was, Atlanta was probably one of the hardest hit real estate areas in the country. I mean, it was just nuts how bad everything was down there. So it was the summer of 2008. We were getting ready to get married. Didn't know what type of business we wanted to start, but my wife was watching a house flipping show on TV, which was pretty common back then. And she said, hey, while we're trying to figure out what to do on the business side of things, let's just flip a house for fun. And she's a marketing person. She's an interior designer type person. So for her, this was perfect. I had never done anything in real estate before in my life. We had just purchased our first house that I had ever purchased. And so I thought she was kidding, but she was serious. She wanted to flip a house. And I said, okay, great. We can give it a try. So we spent a couple of months studying, learning, and we finally got a house under contract. The day we got the house under contract, we actually got another offer accepted. And then two days later, we had another offer accepted. These were all offers we had made previously. So we had three offers accepted all within about three days. And so we had to decide which of the houses we wanted to do. Ultimately, we decided to do all three. So, And that was actually very lucky that we did because the first one didn't go great. And had we stopped with the first property, we probably never would have done a second. 
But because we got three under contract at the same time, we did the next two. Those went really well. So we just started to roll from there. I think we did 12 or 14 the first year, and then we did about 20 the second year and just kept going from there. And that, that ended up being the business that, that we decided to do. Could you give us a brief overview of how you analyze a flip to determine whether or not to purchase the property and move forward with the deal? Absolutely. Uh, so the way I do it, I use a, a relatively simple formula. I like to work backwards. I like to figure out what is the most I can pay for a property. So I look at a property and I want to know what's the offer I can make to the seller that if they say yes, I've got a deal. If they say no and want me to go higher, I can't do it. So the formula I use is that maximum purchase price, the most I can pay for the property, is the resale value, what we call the after repair value. And that's what you're going to resell the property for minus the rehab costs. So that's whatever it's going to cost to, to go in and pay for labor and materials to get the property rehabbed, minus the fixed costs. Fixed costs refer to all the extra costs that are associated with the deal outside of the rehab costs. So those are the purchase costs. So things like uh, my inspection fees, any appraisal fees or lender fees I have on the purchase, my closing costs on the purchase. That includes my holding costs. So things like taxes, insurance, lawn care while I'm, while I'm doing the rehab, and then the selling costs. So commissions, closing costs on the back end, any fees I'm going to have to pay for the buyer on the back end, all that goes into a bucket that I call fixed costs. And then finally, there's my desired profit. And my desired profit typically is about 15% of whatever the resale value is. So if I'm going to resell a property for $200,000, I want to make 15% of that in profit. So about $30,000 for that example. So that formula, again, the maximum purchase price I can pay is the resale value of the house, the anticipated resale value of the house, minus rehab costs, minus fixed costs, minus my desired profit. So once I have that maximum purchase price, I then go in and I use that to negotiate the deal. So that's the highest price I can pay for the property. If I can get it for that price or lower, I move forward. If I can't, I walk away. What made you decide on a 15% margin? It was pretty arbitrary at the time. Um, back in Atlanta in 2008, when we started, we didn't have this formula. We were using another formula called the 70% rule, which is basically you take 70% of the after repair value, you subtract out your rehab costs, and that's your, your maximum purchase price. That formula, basically, the way that works is it assumes that that 30% that's left over um, you take 70% of the after repair value, the 30% that's left over, that's basically your bucket of fixed costs and profit. So my fixed costs were always about 15% in that bucket, which always left my profit to be about 15%. So before I started using my formula, my numbers typically worked out to I was making about 15% profit on my deals. So I just kind of stuck with that number. Over the years, I found that my Average profit's been a little bit closer to 20%, but 15% is kind of where I'm comfortable. That way I know that if I make any mistakes on my resale value assumptions, if I make any mistakes on my rehab cost assumptions, if I make any mistakes on my fixed cost assumptions, 15% is kind of a good margin where I have some room to make some mistakes, but I should still come out of a deal profitably if I can hit that target. If you tried underwriting for like 20, 25, 30% margins, do you feel like that would make your offers non-competitive? Yeah, especially these days. I know a lot of investors these days, and we're recording this in February of 2019 for people that are watching this 10 years from now. <laughs> but these days, we're, we're kind of uh, in a really hot market. And I see a lot of investors who are willing to go down to 8, 9, 10, 11, 12% returns on their deals. And it's making it really tough for good investors who kind of stick with their metrics 
uh, to find good deals. I have trouble finding 15% deals these days. If I tried to go to 20, I'd essentially find no deals. Just priced out. So what do you do in that regard? Do you just lower your expectations in terms of profit or do you switch business models? I switch business models. So I'm, I'm not one that is willing to add risk just to be doing deals. I'm a big fan of the idea of at any point in the market cycle, there's going to be ways to make money. And if you can figure out what those ways are, there's always going to be some low-hanging fruit. And if you can figure out what that is and you can pivot your business to take advantage of that, that's always going to be easier and lower risk than saying, I'm sticking with one particular strategy and I'm just willing to, to accept thinner margins using that strategy. So, Makes sense to me. Going back to your calculation, you talked a lot about estimated rehab costs. Now, you literally wrote the book on estimated rehab costs. I'm wondering if you can share with us and our listeners maybe like the top mistakes you see when people are estimating their rehab costs. Absolutely. So probably the number one mistake I see is people try and take shortcuts. Um, not a day that goes by that I'm not on bigger pockets or I get an email or, or I see a, a text or a message on Facebook or something where somebody says, hey, I'm getting ready to flip a house in Boston or Cleveland or wherever it is. And can you give me an idea, cost per square foot, what I should expect it to cost? And to me, that's just a ridiculous question. I, I, I like to point out that the cost of rehab is going to depend on a whole lot of things. It's going to depend on one, the location. That's the biggest thing. But even if you know the location, there are things like, well, what are you doing to the house? So if I'm going to replace the flooring, that's a lot different than if I'm going to gut the inside at a second level and build a, a, an in-law suite. Obviously, that's going to take the cost per square foot up. What level of materials am I using? So am I using vinyl flooring throughout or am I putting down like marble floors? What type of contractors are you using? So there are a lot of people that will go in with a GC and pay the GC markup and basically be completely hands-off on the deal. There are other people that are happy to go in and they're happy to GC the whole thing and they're there every day managing the contractors and going out and purchasing the materials. Obviously, if you do it that way, it's going to be more time intensive, but you're going to save money not having to pay that GC markup. What time of year is it? So in certain locations, there's going to be certain times a year that it's going to be a lot more or less expensive than others. Uh, I did a bunch of rehabs in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And let me tell you something, it was a lot cheaper in the winter than it was in the summer, but you had a whole lot of other obstacles. Um, what are the permit requirements in the area that you're, that you're rehabbing? So different jurisdictions are going to have much stricter permit requirements, and that can get really expensive if you go someplace where they make you permit everything. So all those things. And then the final thing is just your negotiating ability. So somebody wants to know how much it's going to cost. Well, if I don't know how well you can negotiate, there's no way for me to know, are you going to get 20% less than I do or 20% more than I do for your costs? So there are all these things that go into it. So trying to do a shortcut like price per square foot or how much does a house cost to renovate in the city or how much does a two-story house cost to renovate, you can't really do it that way. Really, the only way to accurately estimate your rehab costs is to walk into a house and to figure out line item by line item what needs to be renovated and then put a price, a labor and materials price next to each of those line items. Now, there's definitely a methodology for how best to do that. You can break the house up into pieces and say, hey, let's look at all the flooring costs now, and let's look at all the plumbing costs, then let's look at all the electrical costs, then look at the roof, and then look at the siding. And so there's a methodology to kind of break it up and to make it easy to create that line item estimate, which what we call a scope of work or SOW. You can create that methodology, but nobody's ever going to be able to say, hey, if you want to 
flip a house in Daytona Beach, it's going to cost $40 a square foot or $80 a square foot. That's just not realistic. Well, and even if you did too, like, I, I think what a lot of people don't understand until they get into business and they've done business for a while is that pricing psychology, it can be a real killer for your own business, or you could be paying a lot more than you think. Like, and a good example would be to go to any sort of technology website, you'll see three options. Yep. And you'll see that their most expensive option is somewhere highlighted so that you're anchored to that expensive price. Yep. So you go and you are even trying to, to build out an estimate, I would imagine, on the price per square foot. Yep. You have anchored yourself, good or bad, yep. to that price per square foot. And that's going to influence all of your other decisions when you're building out any sort of estimate. Am, am I on the right page? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And that's why I tell people go into a house without any expectations. Don't assume just because this is a house that looks like a house you've done before and you knew that one cost you 28000 to renovate. Don't assume that that means this one's going to cost you $28,000 to renovate. A lot of things could have changed since last year. The materials could be different. Time of year could be different. Contractors could be different. A whole lot of things can be different. So yeah, don't get anchored to any, any one price or any one cost walking into a house. Stick to the methodology. And once you get good at that methodology for estimating rehab costs, you can do it the right way and you can still do it quickly. I mean, I, I walk through and I know line item by line item what I have to renovate in the house and how much it's going to cost. And it generally doesn't take me more than 15 or 20 minutes. So doing it right doesn't mean taking a whole lot of time. That's good. No, I think people definitely should be doing it the right way and making sure that they're taking the time, not taking those shortcuts, like you said. Um, when it comes to you know where we are in the current market cycle, I know you wrote another book on it. Uh, I believe it's recession-proof investing. And we've spoken about this with our guests uh, at the Real Estate CPA. We believe we're at the very least closer to the top than we are at the bottom. Just kind of want to get an idea of where you think, you know, where we are in the market currently and uh, what you're doing to prepare yourself in the event of a downturn. Yep. So I, I'm the first to say that I don't like to make predictions. So I can give you my opinion, but I don't want anybody to go out and, and make investing decisions based on my opinion. But everything I see tells me that we're at the top of the market. And not only are we at the top of the market cycle, I, I think we've been bouncing along the top for a few months now. A lot of indicators. So everything from GDP peaked last summer at about 4.2%. By the time this comes out, Q4 numbers will have been released, but uh, uh, we're still a couple days from there. And they're talking about GDP down at like 1.5% for Q4. So that's a drop from 4% to 1.5% over just two quarters, which is huge. Interest rates are up, which is necessarily going to slow the economy. Unemployment is off its lows. Wage growth is still pretty stagnant. Housing market has slowed down. Um, in many markets, we're above that six-month average housing inventory that we see, just long-term average. So, so we've moved above that, that long-term average. Um, then there are the common metrics that people look at, stuff like the yield curve, which is the plotting of the yields of different expiration of treasury bonds that the government sells. And I won't get into the details there, but long story short, one of the best indicators of moving towards a recession is when treasury bond yields start to act in a certain way. And we kind of hit that back in December, some indication that we're probably pretty close to a recession. Auto sales. Auto sales has historically been a fantastic indicator of where the economy is going. 
when people start to lose consumer confidence, basically the first thing to drop is auto sales. People don't spend on the, that luxury purchase. And so we've seen a, a big drop in auto sales over the past six months. And the stock market's a, a great indicator as well. When you start to see volatility in the stock market, like we saw in, in December and the first part of January, that's a good indicator. And I know there are a lot of people who look at the stock market and they say, well, we're going back up. And they look at the housing market and they say, hey, the housing market's getting stronger again. What I like to point out is a lot of times at the top of the market, we're going to see that up and down movement. We're going to see that bumping along the top. There'll be weeks where things look good, weeks where things look bad. There'll be some indicators that look good, some indicators look bad. So I, I think just the fact that this week things look good or next week things look bad isn't necessarily an indicator of the overall trajectory. I think at this point, we're at the top and kind of the economic expansion that we've been in the midst of for the last 10 years has come to an end. And it's just a question of when do we start to drop? So, so in this type of scenario, what should someone do or what steps, you know, maybe are you taking particularly in, you know, not that everybody should go out and run out and necessarily sure. do what you're doing. But you know, what are you doing to, to make sure that you're preparing yourself for this type of event? Yeah. So keep in mind, everybody has different strategies. Um, I might be flipping houses. I might be doing something else. There are people that are doing buy and hold. There are people that are buying notes. There are people that are doing commercial real estate. So depending on what you're doing, your strategy is going to change. For those people that are house flippers out there, a couple tips I like to, to point out. One, keep projects quick. When the downturn comes, it may take another three or six or 12 months. It may be a, a slow trend downward, or it could be a cliff. I mean, we saw in 2008 that, that we took a big drop off very quickly. So keeping projects quick basically allows you to kind of avoid or reduce the risk of getting caught in a quick market drop. Make sure your margins are pretty healthy. So I like to say that figure out, look back at historic data for your market and figure out what's the worst case, reasonable worst case drop you're likely to see in your market. So for example, if in I'm in, I'm in Maryland, D.C. area, in this area, typically the worst case drop we're going to see is about a 15% drop. We're pretty well insulated here. If you look back at 2008, it was a little worse. But if you look at 2001 and you look at the early 90s and you look at uh, the, the late 80s, typically what we see in the Maryland, D.C. area is maximum about 15 or 20% drop in housing value. And 15 tends to be kind of on the high end. So any deals I'm going to do in Maryland, D.C. area, I want to have at least 15% margins. So that way, if we see a worst case, a quote unquote worst case, it can always be worse. But if we see a typical worst case drop of 15% in housing prices here, and I know that my deals have 15% margin, worst case, I should still at least break even on my projects. So what I tell people is look at the area you're in. If you're in an area that's highly susceptible to big drops in, in real estate prices, make sure you have higher margins to account for that. If you're in a place that, that tends to be better, more well-insulated, and you're not going to see as big uh, drops in the housing market, well, then you can do smaller margin deals. So um, let's take, yeah. so re real quick, let, let's take the investor scenario or flipper scenario. You know, they've been flipping for a number of years. They've seen the profit margin start to shrink, but flipping is their day job. It's how they make money. And let's say that they've even gone down to the 8%, but now they're getting too nervous. They know that there's potentially a recession coming, but at the same time, flipping is their vehicle. It's how they support their lifestyle. What does that person do? That person um, first has to decide how much risk they're willing to take. 
So there are people that they do something for their, their livelihood and they're, willing, they're still willing to take big risks on it. Um, maybe they don't have a family to support. Maybe they have some backup plan. And then there are other people who, um, if this is their livelihood, they're, they're going to be a lot more risk averse with it. So the first thing you have to decide is what is your risk tolerance? From there, it's really just mitigating the risks. And mitigating the risks involve reassessing the market every step of the way. So I like to look at my market. I like to look at my housing stats in my market. I want to see the trajectory of inventory and prices and sales. And is the high end moving differently than the low end versus the median housing price? I like to keep my finger on the pulse of what our market is doing so that I'm ready to react. And as long as I'm seeing that our market's healthy, and for example, here in, in DC, we're pretty healthy. I, we're not, we haven't seen a big move up or down. There's, there's increased inventory, but prices haven't really moved. So based on that, I'm comfortable just keep doing what I'm doing. But I'm constantly looking at that data. Every month, every couple of weeks, I look at that data to see what's changing. And if two weeks from now, I look at the data and I see that we've gone from four months of inventory to seven months of inventory, then I'm going to change, reassess and change my strategy. Um, but as long as the market's telling me things are still pretty healthy, I'm going to focus on increasing the speed at which I do deals. I'm going to focus on basically making sure my margins are as good as they possibly could be. And then I'm going to make sure that I have some mitigation plan on the back end. So um, I saw a lot of people in 2008 who made the mistake of the market started to trend down and they said, oh, okay, so the, the market's going down. I'm going to list my house now. And they list the house a little bit too high just to try and get out with their profit. Market drops some more and they say, okay, I'm going to drop the price. So at least I make a little profit and they can't sell it. The market drops some more. They say, okay, I'm going to just try and break even. And they're constantly chasing the market down as opposed to saying, hey, I just want to get out of this property. And too many people make that decision too late to, to just cut their losses and move on. And what they find is that six months later, they're in a much worse position than if they had just cut their losses. So the last thing I tell people is keep doing what you're doing, try and mitigate as much as possible. But if you do get in a situation where it looks like the market's starting to fall out from under you, don't be scared to cut your losses. Great thoughts. Excellent. And if anybody wants more market insight from Jay, I know you've been posting a lot on social media, so you'll find Jay on Facebook. Absolutely. <laughs> Love it. Posting some really good stuff there recently. I, I appreciate it. I know a lot of your, a lot of your connections do as well. I appreciate it. Uh, so shifting gears a bit, you know, we are an accounting and tax podcast, so yep. let's dive into some of the, the fun stuff as, as we like to think of it. <laughs> uh, some of our listeners probably might not understand that flipping is considered an active business rather than a passive sort of investment vehicle like rental real estate is. And active businesses can be taxed and generally are taxed at ordinary income rates uh, and self-employment tax rates. So we've got that 15.3% FICA tax. Could you kind of share some strategies that you have used in the past? I know that you have an excellent CPA uh, so can you share some of the strategies that, that you and your CPA have used in the past to kind of mitigate that FICA tax exposure? Yep. Um, so I, I like to start this, and I know you know this, but for your listeners, and I'm sure you've probably told them this a hundred times, but flipping houses is not a good tax shelter. If you're concerned about paying taxes, you probably don't want to be flipping houses. Right. Um, Actually, if you're paying a lot of taxes when you're flipping houses, you're doing a good job. That's true. Paying a lot of taxes is always good. But if your goal is to make it the same amount of money, but pay less tax, 
flipping is probably not the place to do it. So like you said, um, you're going to be subject to ordinary income tax. I know a lot of people talk about, oh, how do I pay capital gains? It's not capital gains. It's ordinary income. You're running a business. You're buying and selling houses. It's your inventory. It's no different than if you ran a shoe store and you were buying and selling shoes or a restaurant, you're buying and selling food. It just so happens that the product that you're buying and selling is really expensive. It's houses. It's still inventory. So the one big strategy that I've always used to try and shield as much of the self-employment tax as possible, um, and again, everybody should should talk to their, their tax professional, talk to Brandon, um, and, and get personal advice. But for me and for a lot of people, it's um, flipping out of an entity that's taxed as an S-corporation. So basically, if you do that, you can pay yourself a reasonable salary, which is going to be subject to the FICA taxes, but then you can then pay yourself the rest as a distribution that's not going to be subject to the full FICA tax. You'll pay the the employer side, you won't pay the employee side. Um, So you can kind of save half of the FICA tax on part of the income by flipping out of an S corporation. And I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. No, you're right on the money. Yeah. So, so for our listeners that that want some more information on that, basically the way that it works is if if I'm flipping houses and I net one hundred thousand dollars, I have to pay a fifteen point three percent FICA tax on that one hundred thousand dollars before we ever factor in my marginal tax rate. So that's a fifteen thousand three hundred dollar tax before we even talk about what tax bracket am I in. Now, if you do what Jay is saying, and this is what a lot of our clients do as well, you run that business through an LLC and you tax that LLC as an S corporation. That allows you to pay yourself a W-2 wage and only that W-2 wage, as Jay said correctly, only that W-2 wage is subject to that 15.3% FICA tax. So using that same example, that $100,000 example, if I pay myself $50,000 in W-2 wages, the remaining $50,000 comes out as a cash dividend that cash dividend is not subject to the FICA tax. Only the W-2 wage is subject to the FICA tax. So on 50K, I'm paying 15.3%, but on the remaining 50K, I'm not. And in that example, you save 76.50, I think, a year. And that's perpetual savings, by the way. So you set the salary level, you hit the necessary income levels, and then you get that perpetual savings. Now, what we like to tell clients is be careful setting that salary level. You're going to have to be able to substantiate it if the IRS ever asks questions. I know that there are a lot of CPAs out there that will just take a random percentage and say, yep, that 40% of your net profit, 40K on 100K is what your salary level should be. Be very careful accepting that as an answer because if the IRS ever comes knocking, they're going to ask you, how did you determine that? And then they're going to ask, well, why not 90%? And you won't have anything to show them as to how you calculated 40%. Now you can get to 40%, but you do need to run some analytics. You need to have some research that supports the salary level that you have chosen. So just make sure that you are squared away there. Awesome. Yeah. Have you like played around with solo 401ks and self-directed IRAs, anything like that? So I do have a self-directed IRA. And um, so we have not played around with solo 401ks. And I know we could probably shield a whole lot more there. Um, I'm actually these days, um, and I don't want to, unless you want to go into it, we don't have to talk too much of it. Uh, these days, um, I'm flipping out of a C corporation. Um, an LLC taxed as a C corporation because I have a lot of other income that comes in and I like to recycle that income. And basically based on our income level at this point, being able, we don't need to live on a whole lot of that income. So we'd rather take it, pay the the corporate, the 21% corporate rate, be able to reinvest it as opposed to, since we don't necessarily need to pull it out of salary to live on. So, so you've consolidated your 
profit, your income streams into a C Corp? With the exception of our buy and hold property. But I have other businesses, I have other investments that are appropriate for uh, either partnership or C corporation taxation. Obviously, and I'm sure you can explain it better than I can, but any buy and hold real estate is not held there. But everything else, all of our other income streams, like our book income, we own racehorses. Um, I have uh, some angel investments in business and I own a separate business. And so all that's been consolidated through a C corporation. And so there's some advantages there to, to having the flipping there as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's smart. So now you're going to benefit from the flat 21% tax rate. Yep. Uh, you're not going to have all of your profit streams hitting your personal 1040, only yep. what you take out of that C corporation, right? Yep. That, that's exactly. the whole purpose of the C corporation for anybody that's listening is that you consolidate into one entity that pays one flat tax it does not pass through to the 1040. So if, you, if you're in a good financial position and you want to move income off of your personal tax returns because you want to save taxes, that's, a, that's an excellent strategy. Yeah, it, it, it basically took us a while to get there because you're looking for two things. One, um, if your effective tax rate is under 21% personally, you might as well just distribute it and pay less tax. And also, if you need that money to live on, and maybe I'm incorrect there, you can correct me. And then also, if you need that money to live on with this strategy or with this way of being taxed, you're not actually distributing that money to yourself that's staying in the company. So you don't have it to live on. Cool. Yeah. You're totally right on the money. And, and you will notice too that Jay said that he keeps his rentals outside of the corporation. That is something that we recommend as well. There are very small and unique times when you would put a rental inside a corporation it's going to create a lot of problems on the back end whenever you sell or pass that property down to heirs if you have a rental and corporation. So that's very good that uh, you're, I mean, your account is a smart guy. I've, we've seen a lot of the stuff that you put out about him and that's awesome. And he knows what he's doing. But yeah, rentals in an LLC, not in a corporation. That's the way you want to go. Very cool stuff. So how do you handle, and I know that this is going to be different. So I'm going to ask you in two different ways. So how do you handle your accounting now? <laughs> And how did you do it when you first started? Um, so uh, as somebody who talks all the time about outsourcing and systematizing and scaling my business, I'm almost ashamed at the answer I'm about to give. Um, but oh, no. I, I'm going to also mention that I tend to be a little bit OCD, especially when it comes to my financial stuff. I handle all my accounting. I don't do my taxes. I don't do my tax strategy. I, have, I, I work with my accountant to actually do taxes and do all my strategy. But the actual day-to-day -day accounting, QuickBooks, I use QuickBooks for everything. I use spreadsheets for everything. All of that I do personally. I, again, I'm a little bit OCD. I could I probably spend about five or six or seven hours a week in QuickBooks. But a lot of that is I enjoy it. For me, it's fun. And I just, I, I sleep better at night knowing exactly where I am. And, and again, it's just a little bit of OCD, but I do it all myself. I'm actually glad that you said that because guests that we've had on up until this point have all said outsource. And so we always feel like, oh, hey, we haven't paid this person to say that, right? <laughs> so there you go, guys. Jay Scott here does his own accounting. That's awesome. But that, but, but that said... I went to business school. I have no problem picking up an accounting textbook to figure out these things. I have no problem bothering my accountant probably more than I should to ask him questions when I get into a unique situation. I don't necessarily recommend that people do it on their own unless there's some tangible benefit for doing it on, on their own. It's definitely easy to, to mess up. 
Um, it can definitely get frustrating. And it's one of those tasks that generally can be hired out for a lot less money than you could be earning if you were spending that time doing something else. Right. So, but if you have the competency and like you yep. said, you enjoy it, yep. uh, then there's no, no problem not doing it yourself. Now, when you first started, were you working on a spreadsheet or were you, were you using QuickBooks Online? What did that look like? When I first started, I was working out of spreadsheets in Quicken. I was using Quicken. I use Quicken for personal financial stuff since the mid 90s. So when I started business in 2008, uh, I was like, well, I know Quicken and I never used QuickBooks. And, and it didn't take long before I realized that Quicken wasn't going to allow me to do what I needed to do and keep the data I needed to keep. And I like to see financial statements and I like to generate a lot of reports. And so I quickly realized Quicken wasn't the way to go. So I, I taught, or yeah, so I taught myself QuickBooks like pretty shortly after I started the business in 2008. So, you know, when it comes to, you know, actually keeping these records and stuff, how important would you say it is when it comes to projecting future flips or, or budgeting for future projects that you're working on? I am a data junkie. So I can go back to my spreadsheets and I can see, I, I love pivot tables in Excel. I can kind of sort and play with data in a million different ways. And so I can tell you on average, like for every property I've ever done, how much I spend in closing costs or lending fees. And I can break it down by state. I can break it down by season. I can break it down by year. I know for my rehabs, I can track trends and, and things that are consistent in my rehabs. I can see like how much my rehabs tend to cost different times a year. So I can, I can like literally say in the winter, I tend to spend X percent more and I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's like, I actually, most people spend less in the winter because labor is cheaper. I actually spend more in the winter on my rehabs for some reason. I haven't figured out why, um, but I can see how much more I spend in the winter. And I can see how my holding costs change based on different areas. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm a data junkie and I really like to, because I'm always looking to optimize. I'm always looking to figure out how on the next project can I make 1% more and on the project after that, save another 1% and on the project after that. And if you do 100 or 200 or 500 projects and you're saving or earning an extra half a percent on each, if you can optimize on each flip just a tiny bit, by the time you get to that 500th flip, you've done a couple things. One, all those savings have added up and compounded. And two, you have a really optimized process and flow um, so that you're making the most money moving forward. So I'm, I'm always looking at the data and I, I have a ridiculous number of spreadsheets, some that I've outgrown and some that I, I've used for 10 years now. And yeah, again, it's, it's also a little bit of OCD. A lot of our clients sometimes, you know, it, it's convinced them the importance of data and uh, hopefully that just convinced them why they need to do it. Would you recommend that people who are just starting out, they should do this on a weekly basis, a monthly basis? How often, you know, should they be making sure that their books and records are kept up to speed so that they can actually use this data to make the decisions that, uh, that they would need to make based off of it? So I say it really depends on their business and it depends on whether they're outsourcing the data or doing it themselves. For me, I have five LLCs that are I'm the majority shareholder of, I guess you could say, my wife and I. And then I have another eight that I use for partnerships where I'm a minority partner, but I happen to manage the finances for those eight partnerships. So between those 13 business entities, literally there's not a day that goes by that I'm not in QuickBooks or in my spreadsheets. One of my partners asked me for information. I have to give it to them. So for me, it's every day. But when I first started out, I was 
probably two or three times a week I was entering. And again, that's probably more than a lot of people would just because I like doing it. But probably two or three times a week I was entering receipts and I was looking at the data. But a big thing for me is I'm a big fan of financial statements. And when people hear the word financial statement, I think they think, oh, big business, financial statements. But for me, financial statements are actually something that, that can be used on a personal level as well. So we talk about a balance sheet for a business that lists all the assets and all the liabilities and you see how much you're, you're worth ultimately, your, your equity there in, in that business. I keep a personal financial statement. And my personal financial statement is basically my balance sheet for me personally. And it lists everything I own. It lists the asset, it lists each of my businesses and then breaks down the businesses with their balance sheet. It, it lists each of my liabilities. So I can see at any given point in time, this is how much my wife and I are worth. This is our entire financial picture in one place. And I track that over time. So once a week, I'll kind of go in and I'll update um, I'll take the data out of QuickBooks or out of Quicken and I'll update our personal financial statement. And so that allows me over time to see, is our net worth growing? Is it shrinking? What's impacting it the most? Where are our biggest liabilities? So that's the balance sheet sort of thing, the personal financial statement. But as a real estate investor, I'm always really interested in income statements as well. So for people that don't know what a P&L is or an income statement, a profit and loss statement, if you're a real estate investor, this is really important to know because this is what you use to analyze buy and hold deals. People don't realize that when you are looking at the analysis for a buy and hold deal, you're basically just looking at a P&L. You're just looking at a profit and loss statement. And so knowing what my P&L looks like for each of my properties and then flows up into what my P&L looks like for each of my businesses. And then at the top level, I keep a spreadsheet, which is basically, here's all the income I'm making from my businesses. Here are all my deductions at the end of the year. That spreadsheet allows me to track how much I need to set aside to pay taxes. I only pay taxes once a year, not recommending that. Um, that's a decision that my accountant and I made. Um, but I only pay taxes once a year and I don't like to be surprised at the end of the year. I want to have that cash available. So I kind of keep a high level P&L for my entire financial life separate that flows in from all the QuickBooks and, and Quicken files. And that tells me how much cash I should keep available for the end of the year for uh, paying my taxes. Real quick. I know that Thomas wants to ask a couple more questions. I want to touch on the, you only pay taxes once a year. Yeah. Why do you do that? And is that legal? Well, let me start with the second. Okay. <laughs> is that legal? And why do you do that? Um, I, I'm guessing, so yes, it's certainly legal, though I do pay, I think it's 5 or 6% penalty at yep. the end of the year. Um, why do I do that? A couple of reasons. One, I can earn more than 5 or 6% on the money that I'm not paying to the government quarterly. So there's an arbitrage play there. If, if that money were sitting in a bank account earning 2%, and then at the end of the year, I pay the government 5 or 6%, whatever that number is, I'm essentially losing 3%. I'm, I'm, there's no reason to be doing that. Instead, I'm taking that money and I'm putting it into flips or I'm putting it into some investments that are generating more than 5 or 6%. And so that difference, if I take that 5 or 6% that I pay the government, but I made 10% on that money throughout the year, I'm making 5% on that money as basically an arbitrage play. Second reason is it's just a pain in the butt. <laughs> no, no. Uh, so I, I, my, my, my accountant at the end of the year, basically he works up the numbers and, and says, make this EFTPS payment and make this, this quarterly payment. And just doing quarterly payments, it's just one or a few fewer things I have to do every quarter. 
And again, it was just a decision that we made. And the main question my accountant asked me was, um, what are you going to do with this money if you're not handing it to the government? And I said, I'm going to invest it. And he said, are you going to make more than 5 or 6% again, whatever that number was? And I said, yeah. And he said, great, we'll do it once a year. It's interesting because I personally do the same thing with my business. And the reasons that I do it are pretty much in line with you. It's to keep a working capital fund that, and, and I, don't, I don't actually invest it. I just keep it liquid, right? So I just throw it into a money market account. It earns like a percent and a half or whatever. Kind of offsets the penalties and the interest. What it allows me to do is if I need to pull the trigger on like a new piece of technology yep. or a new hire or just anything, like if, I, if we identify that there's some sort of new niche out there that we want to dive into hard and fast, I have the working capital available to do it because I haven't sent it into the IRS. I'm in the same boat. I wait until April 15th every single year. I write a ginormous check. I'm sure yours is much higher than mine. No, I, I, it probably isn't. Big check. And, and you just say, hey, you know what? It's cool. I'll pay the little penalty and interest. You're investing it. I'm not. But still, it's, it's for relatively the same reason. And we do this with a couple of our clients, but it, it's a very interesting conversation because if you're like me, at least, uh, and I don't know how to avoid this yet, you get a letter every single year from the IRS and it's terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. You open it and it's like, here's your penalties and your interest, you lazy person. You should be paying us more and more often. And sometimes we've done this in the past with some clients and they agree and then they get the letter and they're like, I can't believe that this just happened to me. So it does take a certain type of business mindset to pull that off. Yep. The other thing to keep in mind is a lot of times, depending on what type of business you run, you don't know what you're going to pay in taxes at the end of the year. So my first quarter is, could look a lot different than my fourth quarter. I could have a big write-off in the fourth quarter. Um, this is probably beyond the scope of this, but um, the last couple of years, I've used a tax shelter called a conservation easement to kind of offset a lot of my taxes. And I don't know till the end of the year if I'm going to be comfortable doing the conservation easement because that's something that the IRS in some years seems to be cracking down on. And some years they seem to not be cracking down on. So I kind of make a a decision come December 1st, do I want to use this tax shelter or not? And so I would rather underpay and pay a penalty than end up giving the government a whole lot of extra money and getting a big refund at the end of the year. So we actually have an episode, uh, episode number 21 on land conservation easements. And uh, we have a guy, um, Jim, who comes on really does a great job of speaking about them. And we do understand they are a bit controversial, but they are powerful. So if someone wants to check that out, they could check out episode 21. Um, Just kind of to circle back on what you said, though, before, you know, you keep your records fairly up to date consistently. We have a lot of clients who sometimes come to us and ask us for a tax strategy, but they don't have their financial numbers up to date. And I'm like, okay, so what's your profit and loss for this year? And they say, I don't know. So would you go as far to say that keeping those records up to date are also crucial for you determining what tax strategies, in this case, maybe a land conservation easement, um, you should implement or you shouldn't implement throughout the year? Absolutely. For me, I like to forecast out a year because, well, I don't. My accountant likes me to forecast out a year because you have to realize that being in this business, anytime you're self-employed, but especially if you're an investor, and a lot of times in real estate, your income can change a lot from year to year. Um, So for example, last year, I actually didn't do too many investments last year. I decided to take the year off or most of the year off because I was writing a couple books um, I was finding it hard to uh, to find good deals, and I was just a little bit a little bit burned out. So last year, if you look at my income, it was so massively different than the couple years before that had I been able to predict that, it probably would have changed some other things that I would have structured last year. 
So always try and one, try and figure out what your, your next year is going to look like. Is your income going to be going up? Is your income going to be going down? Um, I remember the first couple of years when I was working with my accountant where he would say, so what do you expect? And we, we do our generally October-ish timeframe, we would do our tax prep for the next year, our strategy meeting. And he'd say, so tell me what next year is going to look like. And even if I was pretty sure my income was going down, I was scared to say that to my accountant. And it's like going to the doctor and not telling him something's wrong because, because you're embarrassed about it. You don't realize that that's his job. And so basically, if I don't give him good information, that's going to cost me money. And so I, I'd rather save the money than be embarrassed. And there's no reason to be embarrassed to say I'm making less money next year. People make more money some years and less money other years. And so I've just gotten really good at trying to be as honest as I can about my business and my situation and what's going on and how much I think I'm going to make and what things I'm going to try and what my risk is all about. And I mean, I guess my best, and I don't remember the question at this point, but my best recommendation is always make sure that you're completely honest and have open discussions with your tax advisor, with your accountant, because that person's job is to help you. And they're, they're not going to judge you if, you're, if you come in and you say, I'm a real estate investor and I haven't done my first deal yet. And I know a lot of people are embarrassed to do that. So they don't get an accountant because they're, they're embarrassed to, that they're, they don't like their financial situation, but that's their job. And so go in, find a good accountant. I'll, I'll tell you, I didn't meet Brandon until about five years after the, I was working with the guy I'm working with. And I love the guy I'm working with. I'll work with him forever. But if for some reason he retires, Brandon's the guy I would go to. Um, so call Brandon and just say, hey, don't, don't be embarrassed. And I, I'm guessing, Brandon, you get that a lot where people like, it, it's a tough conversation because people think you're going to judge them. Yeah. Yeah. You, you do have to do a little bit more digging in certain circumstances. Yeah. And, and, and like the problem too, is that like, we know, we already know, we can see the fact pattern lining up. It's like, I mean, Jay, you could come to me and be like, ah, oh, man, my income next year is going to tell you, I already know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the mar- where the market's at, especially if you're in the flipping business, it's like, I expect your profits to decrease or yeah. your volume to increase, which yeah. means you're probably going to take on the bigger team and all that stuff. And it's just, yeah. So there, there's no need to be, uh, to, to be embarrassed. We, we look at numbers all day long and we just try to figure out how to piece them all together and make it a better result. So, yep. Yeah. Um, other thing I would say, and again, this goes back to, it's just like working with your doctor. You need to take your health into your own hands. You need to do the right thing. Your doctor isn't going to wait for you to break yourself and then fix you. Um, you need to, to keep yourself healthy. Same thing with tax. I mean, you need to, to, we have the internet and there's no excuse now having the internet not to have a basic understanding of how taxes work for your business and knowing what you can write off and what you can't write off um, and how you can save a little money here and there. And certainly there's plenty of complex things that I, I shoot my accountant an email once or twice a week asking a question. Should I make my charitable contributions through my business or personally? Because there's probably some weird thing there that is going to affect it. But when it comes to things like, I went to Oakland last week to speak and I went with my family. And so it becomes a question of, okay, can we, how do we write off this quote unquote vacation slash business thing? So by doing a little bit of research, not this time, but the first time I did it years ago and using the same strategy, I can, I can ensure that one, I can write off most of the trip and two, I can do it legally. I can be in compliance. Um, I know too many people that are kind of like, they'll go on a vacation, they'll have one business meeting, they'll write the whole thing off, they'll get audited, and then they're, they're freaking out. And it's one of those things, do the research beforehand, figure out like what you have to do to make sure that if you get audited, you're in compliance. 
there are so many people I know in this business that have that are real estate professionals, but they don't track their mileage because they don't think about it. They think it's too difficult. And you don't realize at the end of the year, that's a lot of money if you're driving to properties every day. And so be aware of these little things that that can add up and save you a whole lot of money at the end of the year because you save a hundred bucks a week and that's ultimately your your kid's college fund. You're absolutely 100% spot on there. I love the reference to the doctors. You know, one of the things that I always tell clients is like, you know, you go to the doctor and you tell the doctor, hey, my leg, you know, my leg hurts or I'm, I have a cough. And the doctor says, okay, go take this medication. And you go to, don't go take that medication and you still have the cough or your leg still hurts, whatever the case is. That's kind of the same thing with any type of advisor. You know, in this case, if we if you say, hey, look, I have really high taxes and we give you this tax strategy you use and you go implement that tax strategy, then, you know, how are we going to help you reduce your tax liability, right? We're giving you the keys and you have to then go put the keys in the ignition and turn it and make it happen, right? And then also something else that, that you had uh, mentioned that I thought was really good too is the self-education portion of it. Yep. At the end of the day, if you're going to be in business and you're going to be serious about making money and you're serious about reducing taxes, an advisor is certainly you know someone you should go to. There is no substitute for working with uh, experienced professionals, but you have a duty to yourself to have a solid understanding of what you're working on and ha- have a working knowledge of it so that you can go and take that knowledge and have those intelligent conversations with your tax advisors and, and kind of work with them on how to figure stuff out. And I just love that reference a lot. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think of it kind of like to use a similar analogy. It's like you go to the dentist and the day before the dentist, you like floss for 45 minutes thinking, oh, this is going to make a difference after you, you haven't flossed for the last six months. You, you can't go into your, your tax advisor on December, uh, December 31st and say, how do I minimize my taxes for this year? Um, the year's over. So you go in beforehand and you be preemptive and you plan and, and do things <laughs> right. Before the year starts. Because you're using analogies, I have to throw one in too because I don't want to feel left out. So it's like it's like cleaning your house before the maid comes, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, that's that's a great one. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, glad I could participate in the, uh, the analogy exchange. <laughs> How many people still hand you a box of uh, receipts these these days? Zero. We send them back. Good. If people want to mail them. People want to mail them. They ask, can we, I think someone, someone asked last year, can I mail this to you? And uh, I think the answer was absolutely not. <laughs> so um, you can, but we'll mail it back with a termination letter. So sure. <laughs> so one last question for you. Um, your favorite technology that you're currently using within your business? Yeah. And, and it's so funny. I, I worked for my, I was in management at Microsoft for 10 years. So people always expect that I'm like, oh, I'm, I want to start flipping houses. Jay's going to have the latest and greatest technology for doing this. I don't. I don't use technology very much in my business. I use Quicken. I use Excel. And um, let's see what's open. I use Quicken, Excel, and that's it. I mean, an email. I mean, I use Google Docs for some things. But really, all of my financial life is in QuickBooks and, and Excel. Do you happen to use any type of apps to track mileage or how do you track mileage? Yeah. So I think it's Mile IQ um, is the one I use, which is great. And I was going back to the thing before about tracking mileage. I mean, people think it's too hard or whatever. Um, there are great apps out there. Um, I think, again, I think it's Mile IQ that I use, but it's basically, it's just always recording every one of my drives. And then at the end of the month, it sends them to me or I can go on. I can swipe right if it's business, swipe left if it's personal. And it just sends me all my business drives. It consolidates those. I send it to my accountant and, and that's just part of my package at the end of the year. So yeah, I, certainly I, I use that. I'm trying to think what other apps I use besides mileage. 
Um, can't think of any. Some of our clients, they use Expensify to track receipts. So they don't have that big shoebox of receipts. Um, I know QuickBooks Online also has a portion of that, like that same app, if that's something they use. I try and get everything electronically now. And I haven't had an audit in eight years. And so I'm hopeful that if the day ever comes that all the electronic receipts that I have and credit card receipts and stuff, because I don't get physical receipts for most things now. I get things emailed to me and I don't really have a good way of organizing them. I do have a receipts folder in Outlook. And so, yeah, I'm hoping not to get audited. (laughs) Uh, So again, I'm really organized, but not a lot of technology. People out there, you could definitely be successful without using technology. But I got to say one thing, technology certainly helps. I've seen so much technology reduce stuff that I have to do. I mean, these days I have so much stuff on the iPhone. It's just ridiculous. But um, thanks again for coming on the show, Jay. Is there any final words of advice you have for our listeners before uh, we wrap up for today? Um, anybody that's listening that um, hasn't sat down with, with, with you guys they need to sit down and they need to talk about their financial life and figure out a good plan because I see too many people that think of tax planning as like a big event. Yeah, I do my tax planning once every August or I do my tax planning, whatever. And it's not, it really, it's a daily thing. And the decisions you make every day are ultimately going to have more of an impact on what you're paying at the end of the year than that one meeting you have like in, in October or whatever it is to talk about strategy for the following year. You just need to make good decisions and you got to be preemptive and look at, I, I think it was just two days ago that Amazon announced that they made $11 billion last year and, and paid no tax. That wasn't an accident. So, Just to wrap that up, with real estate, there's ways you can pay no taxes too potentially. So, you know, it's something throughout there is possible for you too. And uh, for anybody out there who thinks that uh, if you don't pay any taxes, you're somehow like doing something wrong. uh, It's not the case. You're just simply being very smart and going about things in a very certain way to make sure that happens. Yep. Absolutely. So thanks again, Jay, for coming on. It was a pleasure to have you on today. Awesome. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.